Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. This week on Chewing the Gristle, Noel Palamine, bass player extraordinaire. He's known as the Fretless Monster, and he's played with everyone from The Firm to White Snake to Blue Murder to Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Ladies and gentlemen, the mightiest, Tony Franklin. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, here we are once again for another exciting edition of Chewing the Gristle. Gregory Koch here with my good buddy, Tony Franklin, bass guitar legend, rock and roll savage, and uh, just all around great fella. Tony, how the heck are you? It's been a while. Wow, that's a great intro. Thank you, Greg. That's coming from you. My man, I'm good. How are you? You look fantastic. You too, my friend. It's been a while. I think the last time we saw each other in person was when you were with... uh, uh, Kenny Wayne, I think. I think you were on the Experience Hendrix thing, and you were in Minneapolis, and we hooked up for a little luncheon feast. I think that may have been the last time. Wow, that was probably 2014. It could have been 13, so it's been that long. Wow, that's great. Or maybe I saw you at NAM or something. I'm sure I've seen you since I've then. I've seen and- you at NAM. There's a wonderful picture of you, me, and Gary Hoey. Uh, yes. I don't know what year that was. Yes, it was like... Uh, you know, you're so tall and I'm not, and Gary's somewhere in the... So it was like a very strange skyline there, but it was fun. I like it. So how you been doing? What you been doing during these strange Covidian times? Oh, what have I been doing? Is that a mode, Covidian? Yeah, Covidian. Oh, I, I, I referred to the various different strains of humanoids during this period as branch Covidians. But be that as oh. it may... Uh, and I know, nothing, I, I know nothing about modes, people. So in case people are wondering, I don't know how to use them, what they do, or I know I have a fridge and it works and I keep food in there. <laughs> you know, there's, there's never, it's never too late to be inundated with the minutiae and boredom of modes. Uh, yeah, so just, I think I've made it this far so far. I'm going to stay away from it. I'm always learning new things, you know, computer programs. And uh, I recently changed uh, my recording system. Pro Tools use it for many, many years. And then my computer was needing to uh, to be upgraded. And so I'd heard a lot of good things about Presona Studio One. Oh. And uh, and so I've been. I didn't want to be caught with my trousers down, as they say. Right. Uh, you know, with the computer dying and losing all my recording capabilities, plus all the stuff I've already recorded. So I thought I'll be smart here for a change, and um, and get uh, a, a new system up and running, a new computer, and all that. And um, so that I can do it gradually and then transfer all the stuff over. And I've heard great things about uh, Presona Studio One. And this is not uh, an, an advert. I suppose it sounds like it. I guess it, guess it kind of is. <laughs> well, you know, as, as, as well I know, we're always looking for things to make our... Um to make our lives easier as musicians. And when you find stuff, you, you can't help but uh, uh, evangelize a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm genuinely uh, excited and, and 
uh, enthused about it because it, it's definitely brought a whole new world of creativity and and um, and ease of use too. I have to say, and uh, so I've been immersed in that. You know what it's like when you're learning something that's brand new. But talk about a whole new recording software and computer. That's that's been deep, right? So, uh, but but anyway, uh, the reason is because I do a lot of recording sessions. This this past year. Um, I've been immersed and thankfully had a lot of recording sessions to do. And I've always done that. I've always been uh, for, well, since digital digital recording became a thing, it's about 20 20 years ago for me. Um, And so I've been doing the home recording thing for people. And, And of course, the internet has opened up the whole world. So one day I'm doing a recording session for somebody in Japan Next day, Australia, South America, Russia is fantastic. I I love it. So I have been gratefully very very busy with that, and I've managed to transition to doing the recording sessions on the on the Studio One. That was the, that was a big deal, right? You know, up and running and and seamless and uh, without a hitch. So thankfully, knock on some wood here. But uh, so yeah, that's that has been my thing. Plus also finally some time to to record and finish off a lot of songs that I've written over the years. I'm sure you've been in the same kind of mode where you need to get stuff done. It's been a great right. opportunity for that. So It has been, as a matter of fact, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, that has really been it. And uh, a lot of creativity, a lot of writing as uh, book-wise, uh, my long overdue memoir. So ah, that's... <laughs> figuring out how to get that out to the world and all that stuff. There's so many different options these days. And Well, well there's got to be tales in there, too, that you're like, can I put that in there? Should I put that in there? I probably shouldn't, but maybe it would be good. And then there's that, you know. Well, there's a fascinating process because I, I've had, you read different stories from different sources. Yes, there's always that. Should that be in there? And I always, this is not a rock and roll gossip dirt kind of thing. This is an introspective journey showing how fascinating things are. Because as you know, I was at uh, Fender for uh, for eight or so years doing artist relations. And so it's that's all part of a fascinating journey. And sometimes... Well, quite often in my life, there have been um, very clear left or right turns where I'd wanted to turn right, but life had me turning left. And it's like, no matter how it's been, you fought it. And it's like, no, you just have to surrender. But then, and some of those were uh, heartbreaking and, and difficult to accept at the time, but life being what it is. And as we get older and hopefully wiser, yes, um, you know, you, you have a different perspective and, and uh, it brings hindsight, brings, a, a, you know, that, that reflective thing. And so there's a lot of that seeing how things have flowed and, opportunities opened up and near-death near experiences and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a fascinating journey. But but what I was going to say is sometimes memories can be, oh, you've got to be clear on, on if you know something actually happened because somebody might have a whole different perspective sure. on it. And so I'm not here to to ruffle any feathers or cause trouble, but I do have some fascinating rock and roll stories along the way. I mean, how could I not? Correct. <laughs> yeah. 
but I don't want, I'm not here to make anybody look bad or, or anything. I mean, there's always different ways to look at things, aren't they? Two, two, two perspectives, if you like, yeah, the, the positive or the negative. I could quite easily go in there and put a lot of people down and make them look bad, but I don't want to do that. It's not about that. So no, that not easy, not easy to write and have that perspective, but still have it be very, very reflective, spiritual, but rock and roll at the same time, which kind of sums me up. <laughs> yeah. Now, how far in this process are you along? I'm probably about, I mean, it's a lot of, lot of pages. It's probably, I'm going to have to cut out. So I'm quite a way along. I'm probably 80% along, but you know how it is. It's like making a, making an album. That last 20% is the hardest, right? Because right. it's the fine tuning and all putting all together and all the, the making everything seamless and, and captivating. You can put the big chunks together and, they're, they're, they're pretty quick, but that last little bit. So uh, I'm on that bit. No, I was just thinking, did you ever have the desire to to move back to England? It's, it seems to be kind of a process for some. They go, go to L.A., you know, music business has its twists and turns. You do this, you do that. And then it seems like a lot of people end up, at least in some capacity, back in the, in the, in the homeland. Has that ever intrigued you at all or... Or is that just your your home is in L.A. now or in California area and that's that? Yeah, I'm outside of L.A. by about an hour. So that makes a big difference because L.A., I was there for, for 12, 15 years and it was great, but it changed. The industry changed, the, the city changed and everything. So I'm outside of there. It's a bit more uh, bit more family-oriented and, and low-key and community and all that, and it's I, I I love that, but yeah, there are aspects of of Britain that I that I miss, and it's really mostly family. But uh, you know, as far as I mean, Southern California is hard to hard to beat. I mean, it has a lot of downsides. You know, the earthquakes, the cost of living, uh, the 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 taxes the gas prices all all that stuff there's there's a lot of lot of downsides to it but when the sun comes out then everything's okay <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, a very fascinating place but i do love the american um outlook the 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 opportunities and the things that anything's possible here and england is um I love it. Don't get me wrong. I feel completely at home there. But there is, uh, that's one of the reasons I gravitated towards here because there were, were a lot more opportunities and openings and, and things. And it, it feels like home. But who knows? Who knows what the future will bring? One never knows. One never knows. This is true. So what's looking like uh, gig-wise? I mean, it's it's one of those things where we're starting to get some things coming in and, you know, being cautious about it. I've got this Dallas Guitar Show thing at the end of this month, and I'm going down there, and I'm fully vaxxed up, so, you know, I have some level of peace of mind, if you will. But uh, wondering about, you know, what your schedule's looking like and what you're, how you're kind of approaching reemerging after this... Uh, Hibernation, as it were. Mm-hmm. Very, very good question. Um, yeah, a few things bubbling, and I haven't really committed to to anything yet, and just kind of watching 
and waiting because, and this is not really a conversation that I want to get into, but, you know, the, I, I know of people that were vaccinated and then caught COVID again. Sure, exactly. So it's, uh, it's really down to how our own comfort level, but also being, you know, being smart with it all and, uh, and just whatever the market is going to accept, really. So at this point, I'm just watching and waiting. I mean, there's nothing truly solid. There's one thing in Europe uh, been been offered uh, towards November, I think, and it's a lot of countries and all that. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm just not ready to to commit to it yet. It's like right. it's. I almost feel like I'd be a little bit of a, a guinea pig, almost. But yeah, and, that's uh, kind of it, isn't it? You don't yeah, know. so yeah, at this point, I'm I'm just waiting, but I'm I'm actually very much enjoying uh, the creativity and the burst that's happened from being at home. It's pushed me into different ways that uh, of of creating and making music and collaborating, which I've actually really enjoyed, and I've got different opportunities that, that have opened up for songwriting and, and creativity and writing and, and all that. So I really, you know, and none of us are getting any younger, are we? So yeah. that, to me, seems like something to really pursue and maximize because as we get older, as we saw, touring was always one of those things that had a little consistency to it until last year. And right. so nothing, nothing is guaranteed. Um, I just want to maximize my creativity and um, work opportunities in every way. I have so much I want to say and and do and create that it's like, why not? Why not just put it, put it all out there? So I'm just patiently watching and waiting and seeing how things unfold. And I've found that there has been a flow to things in life. And that's where the book, I recommend writing a book, even if you, even if you don't want to publish it, but for yourself, I don't know if you write or journal or do that I, kind of stuff. I have been tempted to write a uh, memoir of sorts, but um, I have not done so as of yet, but it's definitely in the cards, shall we say. Yeah. And it's a great therapeutic process, something I use to open up creativity as well. There was a great book called The Artist's Way, which I'm right. sure you you're aware of one of the things in that is the morning pages and the morning pages you can do it any time of day but it's right. uh, it's writing three pages completely free form and uh, there can be no preconceived idea of what it's going to going to be as you just start because it opens up your creative processes i found right and uh, it's like you you start writing and even if you don't feel like it you do it anyway it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to write here. Uh, I don't really feel like doing it, but I hear it's good for my creativity, so I'm going to do it. Oh, look, there's a there's a bird flying out there. I wonder which way it's going and all that stuff. And oh, look at those clouds. It looks like a uh, looks like Pinocchio or whatever. You know, right, right, right. It's, it, so it goes from there, and it's it's a fascinating process because what I think it does. It forces you to get creative and observe and write even when you're not feeling like it. So it's, it really does open up those creative channels. I find it incredibly therapeutic. 
And so writing a memoir is is like that, but it's purposeful too. And you get, it's amazing what you remember, all the little details. And that for me has been quite fascinating, really, because you do, you remember a lot when you start going, diving back into that time window, whatever it may be. You're like, wow, all those little, little nuances and things that you remember. So it's, it's good. I recommend it. Even if you don't publish it, it can be for, like it. be for your therapy, for your children, or for burning. There you go. <laughs> or all of the above. <laughs> well, an interesting thing you said was, you know, I too have found, uh, I mean, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that came forward that made it be, you know, actually financially advantageous for me to stay home. And, um, and it's and I feel incredibly. I'm always inspired creatively to do stuff. There is something about waking up in your own bed and going downstairs and going. I can do whatever I want, and you know, and 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 create things on the spot. I I enjoy traveling. I enjoy seeing the world. But I'm, you know, you you come across people either you know personally ever when I'm doing these uh, chats or you know see people online and stuff that are going batshit crazy because they can't tour. Um. And, you know, I can relate, but at the same time, I guess it's kind of a, you know, what you were saying is you get a little bit older and uh, you get a little bit more comfortable in your shoes. You're kind of cool wherever you are and you'll figure out a way, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're resourceful as musicians. You have to be. If you're not resourceful, if you're not creative and evolve with the times. I mean, you remember, of course, the times when there were... It was albums and going to radio and uh, and then touring. And that's all there was. Right. And we'd go to the recording studio. We'd hopefully write some good songs and get a good band together. I've been very fortunate to be part of some great situations um, where that was the case. And uh, almost, you know, had some, what was it? Uh, What's the is it monopoly where you just move forward, you skip go and you go here? And it's like I, I had those opportunities where I where where things were presented to me where I was already ahead of the game, very gratefully so. And um, but that was what it was then. If you if hopefully you could write and and get some music on the radio and all that, but but then it changed. Who would have thought that? You know, radio and albums and, and touring would uh, would go away, and, um, and then it would be what CDs, cassettes, and and MP3s, and 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 so, you know, we have to evolve. Right. If we're not if we're not going to do that, then you know we we're, we're a lot tougher than people. Th- but you do. You look tougher than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a facade. I I'm know a teddy it bear. Is. I know, I know that. I know that. And I look like a teddy bear, but I'm a I'm a Viking. So <laughs> you know, you see it's like, but we have to, right? We have to be so determined and, and fighters and survivors and scrappers while at the same time being very open creatively. It's a calling to be a musician. It's not something they think, oh, that's great. Yeah, I think I'd like to do that. No, no. I mean, especially you know, you and I have had long careers, and in many ways, I wake up feeling like, "Hey, there's a there's a new day and a new opportunity. Let's see what we can do today." Right, absolutely. And we have to, and so you know, I do embrace these changes and whatever it may bring. Don't get me wrong. If hey, I would love to play out live again, but it's gotta it's gotta be right. You know, right. you, sometimes you can force things and. Uh, 
you know, it's like being in a band that you know it's not right, but you think it would be uh, worth giving it a go anyway. And you were right. It wasn't right. <laughs> so, uh, but that, that's, once again, getting older, you get, you have experience. You have uh, experience comes from making mistakes, doesn't it, sometimes? So it does, it's, uh, <laughs> that's how we get wise, right? I'm very wise, yes. Because I made lots of mistakes. <laughs> Well, speaking of youth, I remember the, the first time I uh, viewed you in person was when you were on tour with The Firm, and uh, I was uh, I was too young to see the Zep. I, I think in 1980, uh, you know, my my si- my older sister's boyfriend was going to get tickets for us to see Zeppelin at uh, at the Chicago Stadium, and it, and the tickets went on sale on a Sunday. And that Monday, John Bonham died. So oh. I never never saw the Zep live. So you know, just you know, as as a uh, Zep kind of fanatic, you know, when Page puts together this new ensemble and and uh, he's going to go out on the road, I'm like I gotta go. And I, I forget, I know, I never will forget that I was in college at the time, and I had just started, and uh, my parents were, and I was up. Upstate Wisconsin, up north, or the Upna, as I like to say. And uh, I told my folks, I go, uh, the firm is going to be at the Milwaukee County Arena. I'm coming down to see it. Uh, well, what day is it? I said it's on a Wednesday or whatever it was. You're not coming down on a Wednesday. That's a weekday. You got school. I'm like, no. Nah! So I had to totally um, uh, gaslight my parents. And I went down. I stayed at a friend's house. And we, we in fact, went to the show. And... Um, Another funny story is that uh, um, another front neighborhood friend, his brother worked for a limo company that actually picked you guys up from the airport in a van. And um, and there were Jimmy Page Marlboro cigarettes uh, ashes or uh, butts in the, in the vehicle that were that were put in a little bag. I didn't do that, but he had them. And I'm like, well, that's that's a little over the top. But <laughs> anyway, I remember I remember the, the band coming on stage. And I'll, I always tell the story about how the stage was black and you could see the red cherry of Jimmy Page's cigarettes, you know, before the lights went on. The lights went on. There you guys are in full regalia doing a And And Page did this thing where he took the cigarette out of his mouth and he flipped it over his shoulder, and then he hit it with the back of his foot and then launched into a string bendery solo. And I thought, he had to have worked that out. But it was it was just, it was it was a religious experience. And and for you, I mean, how was that, you know, here you are. I mean, you weren't that much older than I was. I mean, I was born in 66. So I was you born got, in 62, yep. Well, there you go. So you're a few years old, and I am very on the road with, with this ensemble uh, that featuring Roy, I mean, were you fans of those guys or was it just kind of the situation you're playing with Roy Harper and all of a sudden, you know, it was, oh yeah, I've heard of these guys. I, oh, I think I'll do that. Well, just to backstep a little bit, um, Jimmy did that same move in the tear down the walls video. If you look for it, I don't know if it was over the shoulder or what, but it was, he did the same thing, kicked it with his foot. And I'm like, that was cool, but I didn't realize. I thought it was just a random thing. But if he's been doing that a while, then th- there must have been some practice. That went exactly. <laughs> and there must have been mirrors involved. Am I right? <laughs> One would think so. I mean, you know, air guitar and all that. You've got to do it in front of the mirror. So I I don't know. I'm not privy to that information. If there's great book rehearsals going on. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
um, I was not a fan of Led Zeppelin initially. Okay. So uh, it goes back to us when I was 15 years old. And my parents, they had their band, which I played with regularly. And we played this pub club uh, every Wednesday and Thursday. And they had a great jukebox on it. And on it was Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. This would be, uh, what year would this be? 77, 78, maybe. Anyway, around there. So you could buy it as a single, rock and roll. And uh, on the B side of it was Four Sticks. Right. Love that song now. At the time, 14, 15 years old, I did not get it. <laughs> and I thought, oh, is this what Zeppelin is really like? Rock and roll must have just been like a, a novelty kind of pop thing. <laughs> and so I was completely turned off. I didn't pursue listening to it. None of my friends were into Zeppelin. It wasn't played on the radio in, in Britain. And so I never heard anything. So fast forward to that tour. I don't know. Well, fast forward to end of April. 1985, we were playing Madison Square Garden. I still hadn't heard Stairway to Heaven. You're kidding me. I, we didn't do any Zeppelin, uh, thankfully. We didn't even do it, or Badco, or Free, or anything. Right. Um, which is good, because I didn't know any. I mean, if, if, they, if they'd have launched into a whole lot of love, I would have been like, what key is this? <laughs> <laughs> so... I'd done a bunch of stuff with Roy Harper, and uh, I'm sure your sophisticated listeners know that Roy and Jimmy uh, worked together extensively. And, of course, there's uh, Les Zepp Three, the tribute to Roy, hats right. off to Harper. And so uh, I knew who, Le who Led Zeppelin was. I knew of Jimmy Page. But going into it, I really knew nothing about, about him or, or the band. Which probably now, worked to your advantage, in it a way, certainly right? did. It certainly did because uh, one, it was just it was perfect because Roy and Jimmy we got together to do the album in 1984. Whatever happened to Jaguar, and uh, which it was so relaxed. I mean, it was totally relaxed. And and you know, in hindsight, looking back on where Jimmy was at at that point, he'd been you know slowly coming out of uh, you know the funk of of, of John Bonham losing his friend and Led Zeppelin and all that. And so Paul had been instrumental in helping him to jam and gain some confidence and, you know, get the desire to, to play again and the decide to have a go of it. There was no mention of this in, in the early days. It was literally the focus was on making an album for Roy and, and just enjoying that process. And that's what it was. It was wonderful. It was just like... And the, and the studio was makeshift as well. I mean, uh, the keyboard player of future band Blue Murder, Nick Green, uh, he was the engineer of it. That's where I first met him. So he was fixing things every day. The studio was breaking down. But it didn't matter. We were just having fun and, you know, hanging and all that. I mean, I didn't ask any Zeppelin questions because I didn't know anything. I didn't know what to ask. I wasn't like coming in as a fanboy. And so uh, it, it was just always like that. And then now, we did where, where was the studio located? Because I'm every time I, you know, I think about those times, I remember my buddy 
uh, turned me on to that record, you know, obviously before the firm was even a thing. And uh, so I'm imagining like, you know, Lord of the Rings type of a <laughs> type of a country situation. You guys are ensconced in some kind of super cool lair. But uh, tell no. me that's true. <laughs> if I was to tell you that, it wouldn't be true. Ah, it damn was, it. Uh, now, this is interesting, though, because it was in Blackpool, England. Now, Blackpool is, I, it's a seaside town. It's on the coast, and it's ideally situated between Scotland, England, Wales, and an island even. You can get across the, the sea. And so it became, it's like the working class. You, you look at the, 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 the place where in England, it's the old seaside town where they're all gathered on the beach. It's probably freezing cold, but because it's the beach, they're on there. Right. The guys, uh, the men have got the handkerchiefs on their hat and they're all on the deck chairs and it won't even be a sandy beach. It's the English. It's like, oh, it's summer. It's freezing. We're going <laughs> to go to the beach. And so they'd be with their trousers rolled up and all that stuff. And so that was the place. But they have the illuminations and they had the uh, the promenade where, where there was... Uh, rides and all that thing is so classic British. Now, my cousins lived there. I met Roy Harper there. I met Jimmy Page. I met Steve Broughton, who, who drummed with us from the Edgar Broughton band. He played on the album. We did the gigs together. I met later, I met Cozy Powell there. Huh? I met John Sykes. I met Carmine Peace. I met uh, all these people. That, and so Blackpool, this hub, there is really nowhere. You look it up on the map and you look what there's a there's a replica Eiffel Tower there. And there's uh they would have ballroom dancing in the Blackpool uh ballroom. It was it was so classic British. It is about as far away from Lord of the Rings as you could get. <laughs> the, the the front where they have all the promenade and, and the fairground is that typical fairground food they would have uh Candy floss, as we call it. What do you call it? Cotton candy. Yeah, yeah. And all that bad stuff. Hot dogs and and all that stuff, and uh, and rides and everything. And so there it was, this studio, and a friend of Roy's that owned it, and it was very makeshift, and uh, really, it was almost felt like a basement, to be honest. But it was more like a, a living room that was connected to the rest of the house. It was very. Very makeshift, but it also gave it the fear. But time was not an issue either. There was no clock running. So it was totally the perfect environment that was very relaxed. There was no red light feeling going on and all that. And that we got to, got to be done by, you know, six o'clock, the engineers going home and all that stuff. It was just very rustic and not that kind of rustic, but, uh, right. you know, very... Uh, hands-on, we were all in there, just very relaxed. And so it's the perfect environment for Jimmy and myself just to hang and, and get to get to know each other musically, really. And that led on, long story short, to uh, you know, him asking me if I wanted to sit in on the rehearsals of his new band. I wasn't asked to be in the band because, you know, bands are, are more than just the music. It's, it's the hang. I need right, to absolutely. see if I was a match for this thing. Because they'd had other bass players in. Um, primarily Pino Palladino have been there. I'd heard about that. Oh, really? That. And I was playing fretless. I was already playing fretless and kind of made it my thing. It wasn't or it wasn't a uh, 
I wasn't like fully on fretless at this point. I was like, oh, that's still kind of at that point, even at that point, I was still finding my way with it. And it's like, oh, this kind of works. And but when I heard that Pino had been sitting on, in on the rehearsals, I only knew him as a fretless player at that point. Aha. Uh-huh. Because he'd done a bunch of work. There was a lot of, uh, he was the session guy in the early 80s and, and that I was aware of and done a lot of work. Uh, Paul Young primarily was the fretless work. And then there was a band called Heck at 100. And all oh, st- yeah, yeah. All, yeah, yeah. And it's all like this beautiful fretless work. So in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, they like Pino. Pino wasn't able to do it. He had other commitments. And so... Uh, uh, I thought, I don't know, if they like Pino, they must like the fretless. I'll take the fretless. Uh-huh. It's the only bass I took. See, I didn't take anything else. I mean, these days, if you go into a, a session or an audition, you take a selection of basses, right? You, right. You take some effects. You take. I didn't take anything, just the fretless four-string, that was it. And nothing was said about it. It just kind of evolved that way, and it and it worked. Of course, you know, there's hindsight. I didn't know any of this stuff at the time. Boz Burrell of Bad Co was a fretless player. Oh, yeah. And uh, Andy Frazier from Free, uh, he was young. He was very young when they first started going. John Paul Jones played fretless a bit. And so um, there was probably, they were probably a little bit more open-minded to it because I've been in situations after that and they're like, Hey, would it be okay if you did the fret bass with a pick? And I'm like, well, why don't you just see how it goes? And I'll, I, I mean, if that's what you want me to do, I'll, I'll gladly do it. But let me start off on fretless. So I started off on the fretless, and it stuck. And so I didn't <laughs> have to pull out the fret bass with a pick. But <laughs> you know, so there, there was a, a should we say there's just a, a feeling of inevitability to it. Right. That I didn't realize until afterwards. Yeah, you once you get to realize in hindsight, and then I, of course I was exposed to Led Zeppelin after Madison Square Garden because we went to uh, Atlantic Records, met met um, Armageddon and all, all all the people and all that who I knew nothing about at the time. I'm like, yeah, he's he's a nice guy, and he obviously got along with Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I didn't know anything. I was pretty naive, but it served me. It served me well because I was not like in awe of of Led Zeppelin and and Jimmy. It was like, oh my god, I'm playing with it. it would probably would have changed things. So, yeah, I actually got more in awe of Jimmy and and that what happened with me and the firm later. So, like, sure. how did that happen? I mean, I was 22 playing with those guys, playing those places, living that dream. It's right. like, wow. It's, that was, I'm still in awe of it, to be honest. I stand back and like, that, for that to have even happened, and, it, and that was me. I have to look at the pictures. Yeah, it was me. And I remember those songs. <laughs> <laughs> I still play them regularly. You know, people request them and I do, you know, videos. Sure, we played, and, the, we played a few of those songs together. We have, yes. In fact, the first time that we played together was at the Dallas Guitar Show. Do you remember that? Actually, I think it was that. 2005, I think. Or did we play before then? It was at that Clapton Crossroads Festival, I think, is That's, what we... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it was the same thing. It was in Dallas. Maybe it was, but I thought... It, it was, was in the, Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. 
So it was that. And we did that side stage thing. And we were supposed to do a, a heavy metal bass clinic with, uh, not bass, but a heavy metal clinic with some other guitarists. With George Lynch. And George Lynch yes. didn't show up. So it was you and Todd Zuckerman and me. And we just made We made stuff it up, up as we went along in front of 5,000 people. <laughs> as you do. <laughs> the show goes on. We said, the way we jammed on the uh, the solo section of Closer, right? That's right. Exactly. I mean, how can you? How long can you jam on that for? I think we were about ten minutes. And, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> if you get creative with it, it anything can happen. <laughs> the, nice, the nice thing about that section is that you can do it half time. You can break it down and stagger it, and then take it up tempo and everything. We did. We explored every option. We, we explored the space, as the case may be. <laughs> And then we took questions, which was a little hard with 5,000 people. There's one person at the back putting his hand up. What? <laughs> yeah, it was strange times, but it was fun. It was, it was good, fun. clean fun. Yeah, and people, people enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it was real. It was, it was fun. I mean, that's what you do, isn't it? We're talking about resourcefulness and creativity. That was what was in front of us. We were supposed to do something, and it's... No, it turned out right. to be different, but we had to. We can't say, hey, I'm sorry, we were planning to do something else. I'm sorry, we can't play. No, you, you get up there and you do it. And you got to do it. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone pickup set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, Bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Well, when, when you were growing up with, with your parents being musicians, um, how much did they influence your tastes and how much did you rebel against those tastes if you did? I mean, what, what was what? How did that shape your your tastes in music that was maybe different from other people uh, your age that didn't have parents that were musicians? Great question. Yeah, a good angle on that as well. Yeah, I, I played with my parents' band from, well, the earliest when I was five years old. I was just singing cute little songs and all that, and then different instruments were added to that. I played the drums, played the St. Louis Blues March and with, a, with a drum solo. <laughs> with, uh, with my mum on the soprano saxophone, and I'd be seven or eight years old. And then... Um, we had many instruments available, and my mu my parents met playing music, so they they've been gigging together since the fifties, and so it was just so wonderful. I mean, they exposed me to a lot of different kinds of music, and and yes, they I really did not rebel against it because I just loved it all. I mean, my dad, I, I gravitated to to more some music more than others. But, I mean, my mother was strictly classical, and then my grandparents were classical as well. I mean, oh, when, when I was too young to play gigs with, with my parents, I'd stay in my grandparents' place, and we'd play show tunes. I'd be on the clarinet, and we'd play selections from The King and I or Gilbert and Sullivan and, and all this stuff or, or all the New World Symphony. And all, oh, it was amazing. My granddad played the piano, and uh, my grandmother would either play the flute or the violin. So... I was exposed to a broad collection of music. My dad would play, often play uh, Dave Brubeck and all that kind of stuff, which, uh, you know, I, I, I loved it. I didn't 
get into it learning to play it but uh, but I absorbed it and 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 enjoyed listening to it and then everything from ABBA to the classical stuff and big band Benny Goodman and um but the their their musical tastes were not blues influence they there was very little uh uh of the older, you know, the American blues sure. kind of influence. And so that was very much lacking from my vocabulary. I had everything else. I mean, gosh, and then Queen, everything, and uh, which you know, I, I discovered myself. And then my dad came along for the ride, and my parents went with me to my first Queen concert when I was 15. <laughs> and so they were, they were fully into it. And seriously, we played probably... Around, around Christmas time in the in the mid seventies, there were so many gigs in in Derby, England, and the whole and well, England in in general. We played for three weeks straight, a different gig every night. Oh wow! And they, yeah, they played uh, weddings, they played parties, they played dinner dances, they played clubs. They were back cabaret. They were the right place at the right time, which was perfect for me because I gained. All this musical experience, I mean, they would play ballroom dancing and so I'd do the foxtrot and the tango and all that stuff. And then we'd do the pop music of the time. But it was always, there was never any soul influence. It just wasn't part of their their world. It was, as I say, it was more of the, oh, especially the novelty songs. I mean, gosh, we played the... Uh, we play the oh, what would we play? All the all the kind of the chintzy kind of pop music. We did basically yeah. rollers and uh, and even did the, uh, the some Muppet stuff and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Anything that had a bit of novelty to it, but uh, nothing, nothing. Well, we do some sweet stuff. We do uh, mud and all that as band. There, there are a lot of British bands that didn't necessarily make it over here, but you know, it never got super heavy. Well, I introduced heavier stuff as I got older because I played with them till about 15, 16, 17. So I introduced a bit of Kiss, some Queen, and uh, and all that. Wrote out the charts for my mum because she couldn't play by ear. So writing out Queen charts, great experience once again. You know, I was uh, but my dad also showed me the theories of uh, pretty advanced theories of music and how to read and harmonies and, and chords and all that. I'd be seven or eight years old and I just took it all in. So, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I, I get that. So I was their influence and, and all that they showed me and, and the experiences I had with them, no doubt brought were invaluable to, to my life. Now, were you an only child or, or do you have yes. siblings? And I still am, yes. <laughs> yes, it was just me, which I, which worked out well for me because, I mean, all their attention and my grandparents and everything went went to me, and I was a handful. I needed a lot of attention and still do. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so the, musically, though, that was all I wanted to do. I mean, I was not interested in anything else I wasn't interested in. In sports and cars and bikes or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, I would literally come home from school and I'd sit at the piano and just play and sing and just uh, that's all I ever wanted to do. So they they lavished me with that kind of attention, the opportunities to to do that. I mean, my dad and I would work out songs the night before a gig 
uh, or the same day of a gig and we'd play it that night. And it was, just, I loved it. I loved it. So my dad was always very, uh, very adventurous like that. He wanted to do new stuff. And, uh, and so it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And, um, and then I, I'd play gigs around town with, uh, with big bands. I'd play theaters, playing for the King and I on the, I was just on the double bass. I was never very good at the double bass, but good enough. And so, uh, yeah, I was getting, <laughs> never paid say to- no. That's it. That's it. You know, <laughs> well, as we get older though, we, we are, we do learn to say no a little bit more, but there's yes. that ingrained thing. It's like, Ooh, this could be, this could be an opportunity. And, uh, but those things back in those days led me to connections and, and things. And before I know it, I was playing in Birmingham and had a been Birmingham, England and had a, was professional and, and all that. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch it all and, and observe it all in hindsight. So when you got older, <clears throat> did it change from kind of enjoying all kinds of different music to having more of a vision of what your music was going to be? Or did you just kind of float along liking a bunch of different stuff and saw yourself as more of a, uh, kind of a side person at that point, or did you have a, a vision of what your music would be and you had in, intentions in that direction? Nice question again there, Greg. You're, you're good. <laughs> I like this. Um, well, wow. It's still, I'm still amazed that I was able to pull off what I did with the firm because obviously there's was a very blues influence thing. Led Zeppelin, I mean, you hear their influences, that folk. I, I think playing with Roy Harper was invaluable to me. And I, I played with him since 1982 or so and did a bunch of albums. And he exposed me. I mean, I can't say that his music is blues bass but there is a degree of that with the folk side mm-hmm. that opened me up to a different way of seeing writing and creativity and playing because you know Roy was very much the lyrics were first he would consider if you ask him he would consider himself more of a poet while the music was subservient to the to the lyrics and the lyrical flow the meter of the lyrics and so there would end up being odd meters in there bars of 5 8 and 7 which he 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 knows nothing about music theory he doesn't want to know i told him one time he said there's a bar of 5 in there I said oh really I said, yeah. I said, I said, don't tell me. I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but for me, when you're accompanying somebody, you have to know about that. Or you have to know what's going on, right? Right. He was consistent, though. It wasn't like, oh, okay, one time it would be five, next time it would be Got seven. It. No, he would. Although he would definitely stretch. So without a doubt, Roy Harper expanded me. But I was still not blues-based. Well, Tob with the firm, then Blue Murder, and all different things in between. It really wasn't until I love Stevie Wonder. Don't get me wrong, I had that side of it. So there was definitely a groove, black soul aspect to it there. Um, but I didn't get into a lot of the earlier stuff until later. And I'm talking much later, like the 2000s. Right. When, and there's this great CD called. Um, 
Well, it's a comp and it's accompanying CD. It's the deluxe CD to the accompaniment of the Standing in the Shadows of Motown DVD, right? right? Yep. The deluxe CD has stuff that's not on the DVD on the movie, which is remixes, largely instrumental, of the uh, original masters of, of Motown. And that was when I first started to appreciate James James. Got it. And it's to me, it's still astounding that it took that long for me to, to really be exposed to that properly. It was always there, but when you really get inside of Jameson, ooh, it's deep. It's emotional for me to listen to that stuff. I get chills even thinking and talking about it because it's so what he did and what he brought to the music. I mean, I knew I knew it was significant, but you don't realize what he really did. To me, that people ask my my influences and it comes down to Jocko and Jameson. Because, well, of course, Jocko was the reason I play fretless. But Jameson brought the bass to the forefront and rhythmically so supporting the song and yet so creative and courageous what he was doing. And so anyway, I'm, I'm going a long way about answering your questions, but they're all relevant to the picture. I... I do a lot of sessions and I've done a lot in the studio and I do a lot from home and all of that musical experience is invaluable for that. And I've played on so many different styles of music. A lot of people are surprised to know that I played on Donna Lewis's stuff. Now, Donna Lewis is a hugely successful pop artist. She had that big hit in the 96, I love you always forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I toured the world with her. We're longtime friends. And so I, I played on that album. And then I've done new age stuff. I've done, uh, of course, a lot of stuff with Derek Sherinian, which is a hardcore prog and, and progressive right. stuff. All of my musical experiences, and then I, I've played with the Buddy Rich big band, obviously not with the late, great Buddy Rich, but, uh, you know, it's a lot of the original members. And so I wouldn't be able to do that stuff without all the experience that I have. How does that filter into my own creativity to, to fast forward? I listen to very little music. I don't like to because I find it influences me creatively. I like to stay very open creatively. I write a lot of music and I like it to be, I very rarely write on the bass. I usually write on the keyboards or guitar and it's usually the melody and the lyrics first. And I like to write directly to paper. I don't like to use a medium. Sometimes I will capture it on an iPhone, you know, get, capture an idea. Sure. Of course. Thank you. Thankful, thankful for that. But I like to write directly down. So I'm not influenced by ruts or patterns that I get into. When the creativity is pure, I suppose the morning pages have, have helped that. Then you're removing the obstacles of limitations that you might have from getting repetitive. And so I let my creativity dictate what I am going to play and write. To me, it's the, it's the inspiration first. Now, I, like many of us, had my crazy hazy days. Yes, of course. <laughs> I remember we saw the light. And my, yeah. my crazy days ended in the, the late 80s, early 90s. 
And then funnily enough, that's when the firm and Blue Murder, that's, they, they were all part of the 80s and those were big party days for me. And it, and, you know, it was all part of the scene, especially the 80s. So once I stopped doing all that, I found that I was a lot clearer and that my, my creativity uh, flourished as well with that. Creativity to me is, it's a channel, if you like. We're connecting to the infinite. There's an inspiration that comes. And there's a marvelous book called Talks with Great Composers, which I highly recommend. I think it's only available in Kindle form now. It's, uh, and it's literally a conversation with Brahms that took place in the late 1800s. He lived a long life and was in, in contact or knew people that were in contact with Beethoven, with the greats, with Mendelssohn, with Grieg, and all these people. Direct conversations of how they derived their inspiration. That, to me, is fascinating to me. And all of them say, without a doubt, that there was a divine influence. Call it whatever you like. But they went into a place where they were still, and they had to write. They, had, they were compelled to write, and the inspiration flowed through them they were just like a vehicle for it and they they literally i mean there was there's a great story in there with um somebody he was an old fella that was actually the violinist in beethoven's orchestra i mean that's the to have that information that source and he was there was a new piece that was coming out sorry it was the He's recalling the violinist story. It was the conductor. And they were they were playing this new piece. Now, Beethoven, I just watched a great documentary on him, and called In Search of Beethoven. Beethoven, of course, by the end of his life and towards the middle, he was stone deaf. Right. But yeah, he wrote some of the most amazing, the, the Ninth Symphony, Ode to Joy, and all of that was written when he was had no concept of hearing the outside world or the music he created. So his, his creative t- creativity was purely within, and he was writing that down. I mean, that's, uh, can you imagine that, having to deal with that as a musician, as a, as a, crea- as a writer, not having your hearing? It's, it's, our, it's our dread, isn't it? You know? Right, exactly. We protect our hearing preciously. And so... Anyway, the, the, the conductor, or the violinist rather, was complaining that this stuff, my left hand cannot do this. It's impossible to play. Beethoven, and I am uh, I'm not quoting directly, I'm paraphrasing, said, I'm not in control of what I write. That is the divine that guides me to write this stuff. You just have to learn how to play it. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, there's his last uh, quartet that he wrote. And it's so, oh, it's it's... It's abstract, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's so demanding to play it and all the players, but it's like, wow, it's, it's amazing. And so I humbly, very, very humbly in my own way, aspire to get into that space when I write and create. And I say that, you know, very, very humbly because it is, it is humbling to think what they did and they were so receptive to whatever creativity came through them. I can do that. And that's why I meditate. I, 
I'm, I'm, I've been meditating and getting myself into that space, which definitely helps too, helps in life. It helps to give you clarity and, and a perspective and a peaceful outlook when you're dealing with life's pandemics. Right. But, you know, it's like you have to be above and beyond that. doesn't mean to say that life isn't challenging still. Oh, no, no, it is. But you have a bit more of a peace of mind and a strength and the clarity to be able to hopefully deal with it. And it's still not easy. I mean, I have people think I, I'm a rock star and I have a charmed life. No, no. It's, it's, I have my challenges just like everybody else. And, and they, they are as intense as everybody else's. But anyway, the, I let the creativity drive me musically. Having said that, when I'm going into a gig, if I'm, if I'm doing a gig with Whitesnake, which I did in 97, toured the world with them, you do what the gig needs. You're not going to say, well, this is what the divine divide uh, wanted me to play on this gig. <laughs> no, you go in there, you be a professional, you, you prepare, you do your homework, and you do what the music needs. And you're there to play the role. I did do it on Fretless, that whole tour, which was fantastic. It brought a different kind of flavor. It was the de- great Denny Carmassi on drums, who's uh, phenomenal, you know, great groove player and all of that. And so, you know, it's always, it's such an, an evolving journey. And I, I find that I wake up every single day with newly inspired and newly driven and new bills to pay. And so, right. you know, you know, you, <laughs> you find the way, but if you can hopefully ride that journey between, I mean, Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin, all of them had bills to pay, right. you know, that they, they dealt with that. They played gigs that they would rather not have played. Right. And you know we've all had to do that, but you get to a place of being grateful for it because at the same time I'm I'm playing music, and why if it may not be my first choice I'm still playing music and I'm able to provide for my family. Right. You know you have to be very grateful and put things in perspective like that. But um, you know it's that finding that fine line between uh, practicality and idealism and inspiration. And uh, and doing what the gig needs because with bass sometimes the gig is just laying it down very simple, and 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 great that's what the music needs, and so you know this I get very philosophical as you can probably tell about it all, but I'm still very enthused and excited and, and inspired, and I have such a, a long list of things I want to do creatively. It's like I got to live till I'm 125 or something uh, to get all this. <laughs> Well, what I thought was interesting is on that second firm record, you you had there's a song of yours on there. It's flying, right? Close, dreaming. Dreaming. Why did I think that first line? Anyway, well, sorry, because but, I was flying at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an open G, as I recall, right? The open guitar, G tuning, yes. And yes. you wrote that that riff. And it what what was interesting to me about it, it was a great tune. It was it was page esque without being page esque. It was I love the song. It was like my favorite tune on the record. So did you, that was just your vision or did you write it for the the situation you were in? You know what I mean? Or is it just like, yeah. hey, I got the song, this would fit, or did you fit the song to fit the gig? You know what I mean? A bit of both, really. I mean, uh, I've been getting into Led Zeppelin heavily after once I, once I got it. 
Her first album I heard was Led Zepp 3, and this was after after visiting Atlantic Records. So you haven't heard the land? So they gave me the, everything on cassette, and I went to the hotel room. I had the Sony Walkman and the, the portable speakers in the hotel room, and first thing I put on was... Uh, Led Zepp 3, and because of Hats Off to Harper, I thought, oh, yeah, and still still my favorite album, actually. Starts off with the Immigrant Song, and I'm like, okay, now I get Led Zeppelin. And and that really struck me was John Bonham, you know, what a, what an identity and what a groove and what a sound. <sighs> You know, you you get it. It's like it's. I've never heard that done in any any other context by anybody. What that what they did and what John and Bron, John Bonham brought to that, and you know, they couldn't carry on without him. It's, right. It, it had to be that way. But anyway, uh, so I was definitely uh, absorbed in that, and I, of course, I've been exposed to Roy a lot, and then listening to Led Zeppelin three and all this. It's like, okay, yeah, I was definitely. Sense. I was kind of getting into that vibe a little bit, and uh, and so dreaming just kind of it kind of happened. Really, it's uh, it's. I don't know if it was like, oh, this one would be perfect. I, I, I mean, I presented five or so ideas, and recorded them on the Paul Studio, and we played them in the rehearsal room. It was quite an experience. And uh, when dreaming came on, it was the last one that came on. They were all like. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that one, that one can work. And uh, I mean, I'd done. It was pretty complete demo, even though it was only four tracks: drum machine, uh, bass, uh, rhythm guitar, vocals, and Aaliyah must have bounced one track. So he only had four tracks. Right. But uh, but even the the lead guitar, I turned the tape over and done a backward thing on it which Jimmy did a very similar thing. I said, and he liked that. And it was one take. And uh, I said, do you like that? I said, yeah, I think that's amazing. Are you kidding? And I actually ended up playing rhythm guitar on the on the recording as well. Oh, okay. It was just Chris Slade and myself and, uh, and uh, played Jimmy's 65 Strat, the, the Lake Placid Blue. That's where yeah. my love of Lake Placid Blue emerged through his uh, – Vox amp, and they said, you just play it. And I said, okay. He, he put it around my neck. <laughs> and, and that was that. He was learning it, but it's like, he's not like, he's, you know, Jimmy was amazing. I mean, there's no ego with the music. He just wants what what's best for the music. And I was so privileged to be able to watch all of that, especially the first album. I was there when he was laying down all his solos and all that, and he would have very few people around for that stuff. I think he liked my fresh and 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 my my input and it was just you know I wasn't thinking of I wasn't thinking of Led Zeppelin. I was just thinking of the music and I was hands on throughout it all, through all the mixing and, and all of that. So yeah, yeah, dreaming just kind of kind of happened and it and it stuck and it's a miracle it even made it on there. That's a whole other story which I'm saving for the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, in those situations, there's there's a lot of politics going on. I would imagine, plus you know, record company input and all. Although, although the band of that with with that kind of firepower, I suppose they had to take very little by way of direction from the record company. 
they they pretty much let them do whatever they they wanted to do and but but they wanted to make a great album i mean that was the thing they really wanted it to be to be good but and kudos to jimmy again i mean you know it's uh, everybody was slating it the press because it's, it's not like led zeppelin it's not the old jimmy page the, it didn't matter i mean jimmy in every situation, because he came from the session world, he would play what was needed for the music. I think it's some of Jimmy's greatest contributions. You listen to solos on uh, on Live in Peace and you listen to the ferocity of, of Cadillac and all that stuff, which we were doing on the first tour. Live version of that is ferocious. Right. And, uh, I mean, I think it's some of, some of Jimmy's most thoughtful and, and, and creative stuff and live. I mean, that for me, I mean, I f- once again, I didn't fully appreciate it, but essentially a three piece musical band with, right. you know, with, with Paul Rogers on vocals. But when we would stretch out and jam, I mean, it would be just Jimmy, Chris, and myself on the stage. And Jimmy loved to stretch. I mean, he would he was not holding back. I mean, money can't buy off her first album. The solo on that would go for 10 minutes. And uh, Paul would be getting a little impatient, to be honest. He wanted to carry on. But Jimmy was having fun. I've never known anybody who could dynamically start it off and then build it and then just build it. And then it comes back down again. And he starts off again building and it, and I was right there with that. To me, those were some of the most magical moments where we're standing next to each other, pushing musically and answering and all that. Because when you've got just two guitars, got bass guitar and, and and no keyboards or anything, or no second guitar, you 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 want a lot of reaction, you of uh, interplay and right. interaction. If you don't have that, then it's going to be it could get quite tedious. So to me, and I say that quite humbly now because I was there able to to be in that moment and interact musically in that way. You know, I didn't fully appreciate that. I didn't, I was just in the moment doing what I thought the music needed. It's like, okay, the music needs to have this interaction happening. I wasn't thinking, hey, this is an opportunity for me to shine and, and push against Jimmy. No, no, it's never been about that for me. It was always about... What does the music need and how can we put on a great show? That was, the, to me, that's just one of the most beautiful things about the film. It was always about the music. We were four guys that just wanted to make great music and put on a great show. It was very pure and organic in that way. It wasn't thought of as being like, okay, this is a super group. We've got to show what we can do and uh, and this. It was always just about the music. And that to me is is priceless to be able to be in that situation with those guys creating music with those guys on that level and and, and that intimacy. And yeah, you know, you just wish you if I'd have been able to appreciate it back then fully, and it took me a lot many years to fully appreciate it, would I have been able to do it? Ah, yeah. Who knows? That's the that's the double edge. It's like in the Matrix, isn't it? For where the where the uh, the glass or the jar falls off the uh, off the. You remember the scene where he goes in to see the uh, what's her name the the um, the fortune not the fortune teller, but anyway, he walks in there and uh, he's about and and the the vase falls off and breaks, and he says, "Oh, I'm so sorry about that." 
But you already knew that would have was going to happen, didn't you? Because she's the the seer, the psychic. Said, uh, "What will blow your mind, though?" Yes. <laughs> would you have, if you'd have known that that would have happened, would you have done things differently? Oh gosh, you know, it's like <laughs> so it's like I had to be naive. I had to be partying because you know the, it was the party time for everybody. Right. If I'd have been the clean living jogging guy, that's uh, well, I don't jog so much these days, but uh, <laughs> the guys that I am now, would I fit in? Would the vibe have worked? Right. Probably not. You know, it's like you get very introspective about these things. I can't help but wonder and ask about the um, just the vibe on stage, like the stage volume of that gig versus gigs that you would subsequently do later. I mean, because that's old school. I mean, in old school, it's like you turn it up and go. I'm just I'm wondering, was it was it super loud or was it just like, no, he's he's over there doing his thing. I'm over here. We can hear each other. It's all good. Or was it like. Holy shit, what's going on? <laughs> it was loud. Yeah, it was loud. But the nice thing was that we were on huge stages. I mean, you're playing, you know, massive arenas and all that. And so it was loud, but we all had our own space. And there's basically me on one side, Jimmy on the other, and Chris back there. And um, we all had our own colossal area. But I, it was nice because... And yeah, those are the days you never wear earplugs. And boy, I'm so glad I still have some uh, some hearing left. But uh, I've got a warning that says we seem like, okay, went away. Good, good, good. There's connection issues there, but we're good. Um, right. Yeah, but, and then the monitors were just uh, killing as well. I mean, we had these sunken monitors on the stage uh, beneath, the, beneath the grill. So there's completely open stage. It was crushingly loud. But, <laughs> but the clarity was there. The clarity was there. It wasn't just like, uh, yeah, this is just a, um, you could hear everything. I mean, you got to remember, and we never did one sound check, by the way. <laughs> never, never did one sound check. We would arrive an hour, 30 minutes beforehand in the limo, straight from the plane. Get up right. and we'd uh, go backstage and uh, and then we'd get on the stage and then we'd leave from the stage straight into the limo. Great. I mean, it's amazing to be able to experience it that at that level. But uh, I thought my, the rest of my life was going to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was – We. I mean, I had Andy Ledbetter as my tech who was John Paul Jones's tech. You know, I mean, we had the best of the best. We did production rehearsals for a, a couple of weeks. Everything was so dialed in and perfect. Every single night. I didn't even play my bass before I went up on stage. I didn't warm up or anything. I was young. I could do that. But, the, you know, everything was perfect every single night. There was never any issues. Nothing broke. It was it was crazy, and I didn't have that perspective to realize how amazing that was. I just thought that that's how it was. Right. You know, think of plenty of things have broken since then, and things have gone wrong. But that's just how it is, isn't it? Yeah. Right. But but I'd had all those years with my parents and other gigs, so I did have that. It wasn't like I was completely sheltered. I just thought, okay, I've made it. I'm going to be riding around in limousines and my and our own plane and the best techs and perfect sound for the rest of my life. 
<laughs> I've arrived. But it's great. Yeah, it's great to have experienced it on that level. A lot of people don't even get to experience that level. Uh, I'm truly humbled and just thankful for that because to you know it was like the it was like the last of the of the the greatness of the seventies, if you like. Right. Right. Exactly. And to experience that, that's that's what dreams are made of. So, uh, yeah, it was great. Pretty cool, dog. I'm sure you've been asked a thousand times because uh, it's just a thing that comes to mind. But has there ever been any talk in all these years since then of, hey, let's get together and do another little reunion thing or so on and so forth, especially in light of the fact that Zeppelin will obviously never do that again. But uh, has, has it ever- almost happened. It almost happened in 2007, I think it was, or at least, you know. It seemed like it was it was close. Then they had their 2007. They had the uh, was it the O2 Arena? Yeah. There? yeah. So that kind of uh, put the end of that, and it's never been discussed since. But uh, yeah, you know, you you never know. But it seems it seems unlikely. But I, I remain open because you just. You just never know. It could be one of those things that say, "Hey, let's 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 do something here." I now it's it could be a great time to do it because of um, musically, we didn't touch any Zeppelin, we didn't touch any Bad Core Free. It was like they wanted to establish this musically as its own thing, the firm right. stand up in its own right, and I get that, and I'm glad because <laughs> say I didn't know any of this stuff, but. Now you could do our own versions of Led Zepp of of any of that stuff. Right, make it our own. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Make it our own, and I mean, Paul would do a phenomenal job of of you know the right Zeppelin tunes. Right, and we could really you know make it special, like Page Plant did. They did their own versions of it, and it was it was cool. Right, and we could do that now, and it would be okay. And I think we would do a phenomenal job of that that material, but. We'll see. It's it's really not my decision. <laughs> yes, I understand. <laughs> well, then it's funny, isn't it? I mean, you're you're in bands with people over the years, and then people say, "Well, you, you must be you must talk to those people all the time." And sometimes, you know, no, I haven't talked to that person in years. You know what I mean? And I'm sure it's probably the same for you with this with all the. It different is, lines. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I occasionally have some email dialogue with uh, with with Chris Slade. And I've seen Paul from time to time, and uh, and we've always got along. And but you know, we're not like hanging out and get, gathering for tea or anything. It's like, it's not like right. that. I mean, bands really—it's very rare that a band is like that. Right. To True. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so. You, you get along, but you're not like needing to catch up and uh, and you know be, be uh, texting each other every every other day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but uh, you know uh, uh, that's okay, that's all right. You know, once once again, to have as I like to say, the party may be over, but uh, uh, at least I went to the party. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and a grand party it was too. I mean, that was the party of all parties for right. me. But, you know, it's like you, once again, you don't realize that until later. But uh, it makes it all the more precious. I can really appreciate it now. Absolutely. Crazy times. Oh, yes. 
Well, listen, my friend, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's been a fascinating conversation. We've we've covered a lot of different bases, and that's no pun intended. That's all right. None taken. You know, I, I just think about the, uh, you know, you were doing the Fender thing for a while. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, just on one last note, you know, just kind of revamping that situation once. It's just, you know, when you're a musician, as we were discussing earlier, you do all kinds of different things and you enjoy all kinds of different things. Um, but in, in a, but you get reached to a point where it's like, well, what's the best thing for my family? And sometimes doing, okay, I'll do artist relations for Fender for a while, or I'll do this and I'll do that. And it's not like you're uh, giving up on, on or, or substituting that for uh, creative endeavor as a full-time occupation. It's just that you have to morph and pivot and do whatever you have to do to survive in this business. And it, it's interesting. I don't think everyone understands. I think there's a romanticism. You know what I mean? You're, you, you, you're seen doing these various different things, and then people are like, well, you must have. You'll never have to work again. You know what I mean? You're, it's, it's all champagne and caviar from this point in. But do you have anything to say on that regard? Well, you, you nailed it. I mean, it's it, the perception of, of my life by a lot of people is, is exactly that, that I'm you know, set for life. And uh, I mean, I'm still working every single day and, and gratefully so. I mean, uh, after all these years and uh, yeah, I, I, have, uh, I have some royalties coming in, but I definitely can't retire off them. Right. Yeah. It's, so, but I love working. I love doing different things. And yes, you do make decisions based on bigger things. Absolutely. A bigger picture of family is one of the biggest. And that, that's the prime reason life was kind of pointing me on in that way. I, I worked doing artist relations for Fender from um, 2003 to 2011. And 2002 was a horrendous year. There were all sorts of things that were booked and then canceled and possibilities, great gigs and all that. And everything, everything fell apart. Not not through any doing of my own. It's just that happens sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, last year we we all had things booked and then things right. went absolutely. And so um, you know, you you take what you have and you you make an assessment. And and so the the fender opportunity came, and I did pursue it. I mean, I did. I I pursued that because I thought I I need to have something that's going to be steady. My daughter was born in two thousand three. And it's like that was definitely a factor in the decision. And so, I mean, I actually turned down a, a gig with Whitesnake in 2003. I'd already been offered the Fender gig or it was floating, but my daughter's, but it's like, you know, I, I don't think it's the right move at this time. You, you really do have to trust your, your gut, your, your intuition, your instinct on, on things. Bigger picture things are at play. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, you do. But but having said that, during that time, I was still doing a bunch of recording sessions. I did tours. I used all my vacation time for – I did uh, two weeks in Italy with uh, this Italian superstar, Vasco Rossi. The guy's bigger than anything. And, um, and we played in Rome on May 1st, 2009 – in front of a million people. And it was broadcast live to 25 million. And so we rehearsed for a week and, and then and did all that. And then I, I did a similar thing with a, with a Japanese artist as well. And so I was still very, very active musically and, and 
recording from home, doing all my stuff and recording sessions. So I was, what do they say, uh, busier than a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. (laughs) (laughs) I was, yeah, but but during that time as well, you know, I I got to be home and, and no, no regrets with all that. And then life once again changed. It was 2011. Beginning of 2011, my parents were they're getting older and I'm like, you know, Fender had reached, that gig had reached kind of a, a, a plateau for me with, uh, with everything that was going on. And my parents, I needed more flexibility to be able to get over there and spend time with them. Put it out to the universe that I need some kind of change because what else was I going to do? There were no steady gigs at that point offered. And so I did have some offer during that time at Fender, but there's a bigger picture play at play. And like, you know, I can do a gig for for six months. So I'd have to quit the Fender gig. I say, you know, it, it just would not be good right. to do that. I've made a commitment here. And so anyway, um, Fast forward, I, I put into play the power of affirmations, the power of visualization and prayer and, and intention. And the gig opportunity came along with Kenny Wayne Shepherd. And I, the, and it wasn't immediate. It was like I did a few gigs with him. He had a regular bass player, Scott Nelson. You may know him. He started doing a few other gigs and got offered a, a gig. And so they asked me if I was able to do it. And I said, I really need to think about this. And, you know, it's, it made sense. The, the gig came along. And so I spoke to Fender about it. And um, I said, you know, this is really about my family, about the, my parents and needing to do this. And uh, I, I think it's it's time for me to do this. I've been with Fender for eight years. I definitely put in some some good time with that, and they totally understood. Were totally supportive and uh, very very thankful because I still have a very great relationship with Fender. And uh, and and you know, I went off and off into the world of being a musician again full time, and it was quite something doing that because that when you're relying on music full-time that I've been out of it for eight, eight or so years. Right. It was definitely intense, but you know, it's, I'm still here, still, uh, still striving, thriving, joyful and creative and inspired. And so, uh, don't take a single day for granted. I That's work it. hard and be good to people and, you know, follow up every text and email. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> it's what we do, isn't it? It is indeed. We do I mean, our it best. It's a full time job. It it really is. I mean, we're always working, and uh, and finding that balance between the rest of life and and always working. As I like to say, how do, how do you prioritize everything when everything's a priority? Right. <laughs> this is true. This is true, my friend. But anyway, I'm I'm going to love you and leave you. This has been a real pleasure. It Thank has been a pleasure, my back. friend. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to be on our our little broadcast here, the Chewing the Gristle Dog on Podcast. And uh, great to see you. And hopefully, I'll be able to see you again in person sooner than later, my friend. Until then, I hope so. 
Stay safe and healthy and that kind of stuff, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, and if I can just uh, let people know where to find me. Yes, please. On the media. Um, Everything's under Fretless Monster. Fretlessmonster.com. Uh, Twitter, slash Fretless Monster, Instagram, YouTube, it's all under that. So Fantastic. Uh, they call me the Fretless Monster. Oh, they'll find you all right. That's right. <laughs> Look for me. I'm very social on the media. Yes, do, indeed. Do interact and love to, uh, to chat and all that stuff and share silly things about me. <laughs> <laughs> Perfecto. It's a great uh, pleasure. Absolute pleasure, my friend. Take care of yourself. We'll see you soon. You got it. All the best. Bye-bye. Love. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Or... You'll hear me soon.